I'm just going to start off with a, a brief introduction about yourself. Um, uh, okay, so Stefan Molyneux is the host of Freedom Radio, the largest philosophy show in the world. Prior to launching Freedom Radio, Stefan spent 15 years as a software developer, manager, and entrepreneur. Now a full-time parent and philosopher, Stefan speaks regularly at conferences all over the globe. His speeches cover subjects including politics, philosophy, science, economics, relationships, parenting, and how to achieve real freedom in your life. With more than 2,700 podcasts, 10 books, and 65 million downloads, Stefan has spread philosophy to listeners throughout the world. Okay, so I'd also like to give you a brief introduction about ourselves, Stefan, if that's okay. Uh, this is Students for Liberty at Queens College. We have approximately about 20 students present here um, and students from Columbia University as well. We basically work to harvest uh, an intellectual discussion on, co on campus about freedom and what freedom means, uh, liberty and what it means as well. So now we're going to basically, we have a queue here uh, with students who want to ask you questions, but I would like to get the ball rolling uh, just to set up uh, the tone. I wanted to ask you basically, hmm, so a lot of people question, you know, anarchism. They, they usually run off and say, Oh, anarchy. If we have anarchy, we're going to have a chaotic world. We're going to have a violent world and there's going to be disorder, no organization whatsoever. When you talk about anarchism, what do you mean? What do you mean by anarchism? And is it consistent with these ideas? And if not, why? Well, uh, thanks. I just wanted to mention that it's not Freedom Radio. It's Free Domain Radio, F-R-E-E-D-O-M-A-I-N. No problem, though. So Free Domain Radio is the website or youtube.com forward slash Free Domain Radio. So anarchy is one of these really difficult words that I refuse to abandon. I would rather resuscitate the, uh, <laughs> the victim than let it lie fallow. And uh, anarchy technically simply means without rulers, all it means is without rulers. And people forget the R. <laughs> Not the first R, the second R. So they don't say, well, anarchy means without rulers. They, they say that anarchy means without rules. And that is, is two fundamentally different things. So without rulers and without rules are very opposite concepts. I would argue, and I think a lot of anarchists would argue, that... When you have rulers, you don't have rules. So, for instance, right, Obamacare has been modified hundreds of times since it was passed by Congress. You have rule by fiat. You have rule by decree. And uh, contra the, 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 the entire Constitution, you have exemptions from the law that are handed out like candy to Democratic favorite groups, you know, unions and, and so on. Even the IRS, which is responsible for enforcing Obamacare, the unions there are desperately trying to get out of it. So if you look at something like Obamacare, you really have no rules. You have a, a command by fiat. Uh, and uh, you, you have the, the debt, which, of course, the young people in the room are going to be currently laboring under for the rest of their lives. I mean, tragically, you all are born into about $1.4 million in unfunded liabilities that you didn't vote for, that you didn't choose, that you didn't receive the benefits of. Uh, and that is no rules, being able to uh, automatically assign debt intergenerationally to people who've never signed a contract is no rules whatsoever. Uh, the, the Congress has gone to war or the United States government has gone to war dozens and dozens of times over the past 200 years. And only three times has it, has it ever actually declared war 
And so the, the requirement from the Constitution is that the Congress declares war, but the president is continually committing U.S. forces and uh, military hardware overseas uh, without asking Congress. So here again, you have an example. There are no rules in the current system. Even if you look at the curriculum of schools, it's this, it's that, it's, you know, it's, it's whole word learning, it's phonetic learning, it's common core. Everything just changes all the time. So here for a situation of no rules. Rules are spontaneously developed to the mutual advantage of participants. I mean, think of something like chess, thousands of uh, years old. The game is thousands of years old. There's no central chess authority. People who want to play chess just agree on the rules, and, and that's how they play. And if somebody doesn't play by the rules that are advantageous or objective, then you simply don't play with them. Kids do it all the time. You go outside and you play uh, as kids used to do. I don't know if it happens so much anymore. I think it doesn't. But kids go outdoors and they play. And what you do when you have 10 kids is you say, well, what do you want to play? And you all negotiate to find something that works for everyone. And this is why the development of empathy and negotiation is really uh, bound up with free play, unsupervised, non-adult time play for kids, uh, particularly in the outdoors where they get to arrange their own rules. So uh, the anarchist argument is when you have rulers in, in a society, in other words, when you have a, an oligopoly, uh, when you have a hierarchy, when you have a group at the center of society, like a government, which has the obligation to initiate the use of force pretty much at will, then you don't have rules. You have rulers, and you have the choice between the two. You can choose to have rulers, in which case you're not going to have rules. You're just going to have commandments by decree enforced at the point of a gun, or arbitrarily changing, exploitive uh, or you can have no rulers, in which case society can begin to spontaneously develop mutually advantageous uh, rules. Does, does that help at all as a sort of introduction? Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, that was very informative. I'm going to transition over to uh, Kai, who wants to ask you a question as well. Okay. Right. So. Sorry. Uh -oh. That's fine. Hi, Stefan. Hi. Okay, so um, first and foremost, I'm kind of obsessed with you, and um, I have to thank you. I know, no, really. But I've actually called into your show a few times. Um, I am currently at Columbia, and um, I called into your show, but I have to get up early, so I always had to, like, hang up because I was always at the end of the queue. Um, but basically, I found libertarianism and voluntarism through you. Um, a few years back, I read Real-Time Relationships off of uh, Free Domain, um, the website. And just so you all know, all of his books are free and they're amazing. Um, and since then, I really kind of like, I've like eliminated people who I felt like our relationships weren't congruent with the philosophies that you talked about. And since then, um, I can definitely say that my quality of life has improved dramatically. Um and okay, so basically, um, okay, so That's my, question, uh, my question gave me a chance to slip into something a little more comfortable. All right, uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> All right, Savan, so, um, I know that um, libertarianism has a huge kind of stance on um, international policy, how we don't interfere internationally for the most part. Um, but myself, I do like international work with kids with cloth palette, and I do a lot of it in Africa. Um, so one thing I've been following lately is the um, the tragedy that's taken place in Nigeria with the um, hundreds of schoolgirls that basically have been enslaved because they're trying to pursue education. Um, so my question is, from a libertarian and anarch, um, anarchist stance, what would you say to that? Because it's 
it is an international issue and I almost feel wrong that we're not doing anything about it, but I also don't feel like our government is maybe that competent to do anything about it. So yeah. What, what do you think is the So best? is your question sort of how can we best help people in yeah. need overseas? Exactly. Yes. Right. Well, I mean, I applaud your work with the Cleft Palette. I myself sponsor some kids uh, overseas. Um, I recognize that I was extremely fortunate uh, in, in the environment that I was born into in the West. So uh, try and sort of spread the love. The first thing to recognize, of course, about the world and international relationships is that the U.S., the U.K., and, and Russia, and to some degree China, are the biggest arms sellers in the world. So this is insane. Uh, fundamentally, it is like it's so insane. I don't know how the people in the in the future are going to wonder how we got out of bed without putting our head through a window. It's so mad. I mean, if you hire a security company to guard your factory and then you find out that your security company has been selling arms to criminals, you would be absolutely appalled. And you would recognize that the security company was simply trying to create enemies with which to sell their services. Right to, to create a dangerous world and then say, hey, look, you need a security guard because you need security companies because the world is so dangerous. When in fact they had armed the uh, very criminals they were claiming to protect you from. So uh, with America, and this recently happened uh, in Benghazi, right, or, or in Libya, uh, during the, the tragedy of September 11, 2012, it turns out, of course, that half a billion dollars, $500 million worth of weapons uh, the the uh, NATO led by the U.S. had allowed to be shipped into and sold to uh, Al Qaeda members uh, through the United Arab Emirates and through Qatar, and so this is sort of an example of look, there are dangerous guys in Libya. We need to go and fight them. And it's like, well, why are they dangerous? Because you keep selling weapons to them to the tune of billions and billions of dollars a year. Um, this, of course, is the great tragedy of the third world is, is sort of twofold. One is that uh, we, and I use the sort of the, the, the statist we, uh, we keep selling weapons to the dictators. We keep selling weapons to the dictators. Uh, United, the, uh, the um, Saddam Hussein uh, in Iraq was armed by the United States and was sold the chemical weapons that he, they claimed he later used on his own people, on the Kurds. So, uh, you know, the first thing to do is if we don't have a government, then we don't have a profit center which can make massive amounts of money by billing the public, largely you, in the form of debt, and then selling weapons to sociopathic monsters overseas. That's number one. Number two is that we keep giving foreign aid, what is called foreign aid. Now, where does foreign aid go? It goes to the governments. And what do the governments do with that money? Well, they buy weapons. Uh, so you steal from the taxpayers in order to give the money to third world dictators who, who then use that money to buy weapons, the cost of which is also stolen from the taxpayers. It's a massive criminal racket that is unholy and has massive negative effects on the third world. The last thing, I guess it's three. The last thing is that we have these crazy agricultural policies where we basically pay farmers to produce food that can't be sold and therefore gets dumped into third world markets. And what that does is it destroys local agriculture. This has happened even in Mexico. It certainly happened in Africa all over the place. And the farmers can't compete with free foods, free subsidized food from Western farmers. And so what happens is the farmers uh, flee, the farmers leave, they have no money, there's a dictatorship, so they don't uh, have any economic opportunities, they can't become entrepreneurs, and so they tend to become warlords, they tend to join the military, they tend to become predatory from that standpoint. So, you know, as far as how to help, first I think we should stop, quote, helping them at the moment using force, selling weapons, dumping food, 
uh, and, and bribing the uh, dictators there to pretend to pursue U.S. interests. So I think let's stop helping them using the power of the state and then they'll do a lot better off uh, without that, quote, help, without us arming them and dumping food and, and all that. And then you can get private charities who can go in there. I mean, uh, Bill Gates, when he quit Microsoft, became a sort of philanthropist and he wanted to get things like mosquito nets uh, out there. And DDT, DDT is actually quite a remarkably safe substance. It was banned as the result of this hysteria from Rachel Carson's 69 book, The Silent Spring, which said that all these birds were going to die, which turned out to not be true. So the world banned DDT and that has cost the death of about 60 million people. Uh, you know, 10 times the Holocaust is something we should pay attention to as the result of a completely false policy designed to protect people. Look, we're protecting you from something that isn't dangerous, which is going to kill 60 million of you. And Bill Gates found that the, the, the aid that was going out there from the government, nobody measured it, nobody tested it. And so he basically said, look, you've got to measure what's happening. You've got to provide me results. You've got to validate them. And people were kind of shocked. So I think private charity is going to do a lot to help Open borders for trade. Trade with these people. You know, we don't, they don't, we don't need to treat them like children. We don't need to be, you know, big, uh, white, uh, imperialist, uh, help them out kind of people. We can just allow them to trade. Open up borders. Open up uh, trade opportunities. Uh, stop arming their governments and allow private charity to do its work. I think that it'll be less than a generation before their living standard begins to approach that of the West. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Here's our next question. Hi, can you see me? Because I can't see myself. Um, right. I don't know how I'm going to follow up the enthusiasm. That's really an issue of self-knowledge. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I don't know how I'm going to follow up the enthusiasm of the last, <laughs> the last uh, asker, but my question is basically what is the relationship between anarchy and capitalism? Is the relationship sort of intrinsic or is capitalism sort of the most efficient thing that might result from an anarchist society or you know what I'm saying? What's the relationship there? Well, I think that there is efficiency in, uh, in capitalism, but I don't think that's fundamentally why anyone pursues it because it's really not very efficient for politicians. Capitalism is really not efficient for politicians because capitalism uh, is, is foundational on two principles, which I, I would argue morality is foundational on. The first principle is called the non-aggression principle, which is you, you should not initiate force against other people. I mean, if some guy's coming at you with flaming, fight, lightning shooting nunchucks, then you can, you know, disable him in some way, shoot him in the leg or something. But you can't initiate force. Self-defense is fine. You can't initiate force against others, which eliminates government. I mean, you, you say you can't initiate force against others. Sorry, you cannot morally have a government government relies, uh, depends upon the initiation of force in the form of taxation and tariffs and uh, laws which are not specific around self-defense and um, uh, trade barriers, uh, subsidies, debts, fiat currency, you name it. It's all the initiation of force. You and I go and print our own money. We're counterfeiters. We go to jail. The Federal Reserve does it and they get respectful editorials in the New York Times. So it's all uh, complete nonsense. So when you get rid of uh, the initiation of force, you get rid of government. Through the initiation of force, uh, sorry, through, through the rejection of the initiation of force, you also create the boundaries of property rights. Uh, property rights rely upon self-ownership. You own yourself and you own the effects of your actions. Right? So if I go and build a house, I have created that house. The house belongs to me. If I go out and strangle a kitten, I have created the death of that kitten and the moral blame then falls on me. 
right? If, if some guy strangles a kitten, we don't throw his hands in jail. We recognize that his brain controlled them and he's responsible. So self-ownership, owning the effects of your actions, which are property rights, and the non-aggression principle all combine in one tasty Sunday-based souffle to create um, the opportunities for a free market. Now, capitalism always sounds like you have to. You have to go and work for people. You have to accumulate capital. You have to invest. You have to be an economic agent. None of that is true any more than if the government forced people to get married to each other and then we said, hey – Let's not have the government force people to get married. They can choose to get married, to not get married, whatever. You'd see a whole multiplicity of uh, marital arrangements, uh, and people would choose to go in and out of them as they saw fit. So when you have a free society, you can have communes, you can have collectives. People can, uh, in the sort of zeitgeist, um, what they call the resource-based economy, they can get a whole bunch of land and they can create their Marxist mommy tit robot cities as much as they want and see how they work out. Nobody is going to compel you to engage in market-based activity or to buy and sell or to trade. You can uh, go on barter. You can call what's called agorism, uh, which is fundamentally not using currency for your exchanges. You can do anything that you want, but you cannot initiate force and you cannot violate uh, property rights uh, in a free society. So uh, does, does that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Who wrote the third one? Okay. Okay. Hey, Stefan. Sorry, you've gone pretty quiet. Can you hear us? Oh, yeah, that's better. Okay. So my question is, um, how would anarchy handle the issue of a violation of, of private property? Okay, so... The way, I mean, everybody wants to be protected against something like theft, right? So let's just say someone, like I buy a car. Well, I'm going to have insurance probably for that car. In fact, the people who create the roads and maintain the roads would probably require me to have insurance as, uh, to, to gain the right to use their roads. And we do this all the time, right? You go rock climbing, you sign a waiver that says you're not going to sue and all that. So you can enter into sort of temporary contractual arrangements with people so that people say, look, if you want to use our road, great, go for it, you know, have fun, but you got to have insurance. So you're going to have insurance for stuff like that if it's economically efficient, right, which it probably would be. And you also will have insurance against your car being stolen. Now, if somebody comes and steals your car, then you call up your insurance agency and the insurance agency says, oh, bummer, man, sorry to hear that. You had your car stolen and they kind of leap into action. Maybe it's got a GPS embedded in it, which will cause your... Uh, insurance co- costs to go down because they can always find the car. Uh, and if you want the privacy, you just pay more, right? Because then it's harder to find. And you can also have a GPS that would only talk to the insurance company only after you initiated a claim, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they would then go and find the car. Now, let's, they either find it or they don't. Now, if they don't, they just give you the money back to buy a new car, and that's, that's the deal. If they find the car, and let's say they find a guy named Bob who stole it, then they go to Bob and they say, look, Bob, um, you're in possession of a car, And he's like, oh, you know, I stole it or whatever. Let's just make it as easy as possible. Well, then he obviously has to return the car and he has to pay restitution. Now, if he doesn't return the car and he doesn't pay restitution, then morally, the insurance company or what I call the dispute resolution organization, since it's more than insurance, would have the right to go and get the car by force, right? Because the car had been stolen and you can, you know, it's the initiation of force, it's fraud, and therefore you can go and get the car back because it's actually yours, right? But I don't think that they would want to do that because force is really um, 
you know, it really is letting the evil genie out of the bottle once you start bringing the guns out. So if I were running such a, a dispute resolution organization, what I would do is I would say, look, Bob, if you don't pay restitution and if you don't return the car, I'm going to tell everyone in society that you are a known thief, right? assuming he's confessed. I mean, after otherwise it would be through a trial, probably. And then what would happen is society would know that you're a known thief and I would imagine what would be most productive is everybody would choose to stop doing business with Bob, right? So his landlord would say, oh, you've been marked as a thief and therefore you can't live in the apartment anymore. And then the grocery store would say, oh, you're a known thief, therefore you can't buy groceries and they're not going to deliver electricity to his house or water or pick up his garbage. And basically people will no longer allow him to interact with them from an economic standpoint. Economic ostracism is an incredibly powerful tool in society that is not used because there is the state. Well, I shouldn't say it's not used. It is used in a couple of places, right? So eBay, which is the world's largest employer with hundreds of thousands of people making their full-time living from eBay, who have no access to a government court system, rely on economic ostracism. In other words, if someone cheats you, you mark them down. If they get enough marks down, people are probably not going to do any business with them. So this uh, economic ostracism is an incredibly powerful way to work on this. Visa does this too. Like if you cheat Visa, they won't process any Visa from you, right? So uh, they ostracize you that way. If you break the terms of service for PayPal or for, or for YouTube or, or Google, they'll just, they'll just close your account and so on. So economic ostracism is a very powerful way to deal with violations of persons uh, and or property. But, and I'll try and keep this as brief as possible. I know we've got lots of questions, but I think that we won't need to worry about this in the future. I know that sounds all kinds of utopian and, hey, you just snap my fingers, human personality and nature changes and my system works, ah, right? But that's not what I mean. What I mean is right now, scientists are currently debating whether to destroy the last remnants of the smallpox virus. Why? Because it's been eliminated from the world. Smallpox in the 19th century was a, well, 19th century and previous 10,000 or 100,000 years was a huge curse and a plague on humanity, like polio. Now, we don't worry about polio, we don't worry about smallpox, because we have inoculations and they've been eliminated from the human population uh, as, as dangerous. As far as violations of persons and properties go, we, we know scientifically what the uh, way to prevent these things from occurring is, which is simply you, te- you treat children with respect, you don't treat them with violence, you treat them peacefully, you raise them without spanking, you raise them to negotiate, uh, you raise them without aggression, without yelling at them, without intimidating them, without using your size, strength and power and legal authority to force them to comply to your wishes. If you raise children peacefully, then they will not be thieves, they will not be Violent. They will not be rapists or murderers. They won't assault people. They're very unlikely to become any kind of addicts. Uh, and so um, right now we don't have any social agency that is going to profit from improved parenting. In fact, I would argue that the entire public school system would grind to a shuddering halt if children were raised peacefully because you simply can't get 30 or 40 kids sitting like zombies in rows listening to the endless squeak of a chalk on blackboard or marker on whiteboard unless they've already been traumatized and and forced to comply before they even get to school. But in the future, of course, since society, uh, since these dispute resolution organizations will only make money or will make the most money if people don't commit crimes, then they will be, I think, quite proactive in trying to help people be better parents and offering them discounts on insurance for their children if they attend parenting classes and if they can talk to the kids and say, how's your parenting going? 
So right, I really hope, and I think that the, the most fundamental way to maintain a free society is to have economic entities that are invested in peaceful and um, uh, positive and negotiation-based, respectful-based parenting. And then it's true, a, a few people will go off the rails, they'll get brain tumors or struck by lightning, or they'll get some sort of concussion, which will change their personality. But it's going to be so rare that I don't think we're really going to have to worry a lot in the future if children are raised well um, about things like murder and assault and rape and theft and so on. Does, does that help at all? Yes, it does. Thank you. <laughs> I guess Nick is I just kind of have a couple follow-ups. My name's James. Sure. Yeah. All just right. one at a time because I'm old. Oh, it's just really one. Like, I like the idea of anarchy, but like when we were talking about Bob and like economic sanctions I guess, against him, what happens if he has a lot of friends and they have a lot of guns? Like, isn't that like the formation of another like state, like the seed of it happening? And like, how do you prevent that from taking shape every time, like, let's say you could institute like an anarchy or an anarchist society. Okay, so um, what you're saying is that Bob is like a complete sociopath and he has lots of friends who are also sociopaths and they want to take over society? Yeah, like the guys down on Mulberry Street in New I'm York. Sorry? But like the mafia. <laughs> well, no. The, the, first of all, the mafia is a creature of the state. The, the mafia is not a, a creature of freedom. Right, so there was no mafia in America in the 19th century. The mafia came over specifically when alcohol was banned. Right, that, that's when the mafia came over. This is when Al Capone and all these guys came over. It was during Prohibition. They came over. The mafia came over from from Italy and from Sicily, and the mafia uh, makes money because the government is interfering with peaceful trade in terms of of drugs, in terms of alcohol, in terms of gambling, and in terms of prostitution. That's it. That's the, so. So the, the mob is a shadow cast by the state. When the state bans things, then it drives up the profit uh, and the danger of supplying those things. Uh, and therefore, you know, people who are immune to fear—in other words, sociopaths—can work very nimbly and very well in those areas. And uh, then they can bribe the cops and and uh, all that. So uh, you can't sort of say, well, what's going to? What are what, what are our concerns about the mob in a free society? Because the mob is always and forever a product of the state, which is, of course, itself a kind of mob as well. Just anyone who. So if like- so, first of all, these people have to exist. In other words, they have to have been raised so brutally and so abusively that they have become sociopaths. And, you know, creating a sociopath is tragically not that hard. Uh, you just have to beat, uh, abuse, rape, and neglect a child, uh, particularly from infancy, and expose it even to a lot of stress prior to being born. And then you're so. The, the, the idea that there's going to be a whole gang of these people that has somehow gone through the entire social process and the, um, uh, the DROs who are interested in helping parents raise their children well, that they've completely escaped everyone's notice, I consider to be not possible. But, you know, fine. Okay, let's say, let's say that that happens. So what are they going to do? How are they going to take over society? Right now, governments take over other governments in order to get access to the tax base. Right, so governments go and invade another country to take over the tax base. And so there is no tax base in a free society. So what are these guys going to do? Are they going to go house to house trying to get people's stuff? Well, those people could be armed as well. So it's not very profitable when everyone is armed to try and be some sort of mob, right? You know, things are not going to be illegal, like uh, drugs, gambling, prostitution, and, and uh, so on. 
So there's no massive profits for them to get, uh, massive rewards they're going to get for not experiencing fear and empathy and guilt, right? Right now, uh, banning stuff makes it incredibly profitable, and it's basically a massive subsidy and reward for sociopathy, which isn't going to exist. So what are they going to do? What are they going to go and take? And, and if such a ban did emerge, all of the existing DROs and power structures and defense agencies would be like, whoa, this is, you know, if these guys take over a bunch of stuff, if these guys take a bunch of people's stuff, we're going to have massive insurance payouts to happen. So we are going to go and get these guys right away. And I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. You can develop a disease in a lab that targets somebody specifically, their genetics, their DNA. So would they release that, which wouldn't harm anyone else and would simply disable these, this person or the leader or these people? I have no idea. But I would much rather take my That's chances terrifying. with that kind of scenario than right now where half my income is taken by force, the healthcare system is terrible, the educational system is abusive, and my daughter is born hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I'll take my chances with the Mel Gibson mob 200 years from now who have somehow escaped everyone's notice, have never been intervened with, have never been ostracized, and have no central tax base to take over. Uh, I'll take my chances with them. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the question. Hello. Hello. Um, okay, a few things. Well, really one thing, but first I just wanted to preface it by saying that I agree with you that Mel Gibson is a sociopath. I caught that and I thought it was a very good reference. Um, but, but beyond that, beyond that sort of thing. You mean, you know, this means I can't use the phrase sugar tits in this entire conversation now, right? <laughs> um, Let me just make a note of that. Yeah, no, definitely keep that, keep that written down. Um, beyond that, I also agree with you with a lot of your criticisms about the state and about the atrocities that are committed through the state, and not only internationally, but here domestically. Uh, where I disagree is that I'm sort of of a more left-wing persuasion. So I kind of view these private actors as sort of equally problematic in some scenarios. So to take the example of Bill Gates, I would agree with you that in a scenario where everything started off sort of fairly and equally, we could abide by these sorts of rules of property and fair play and the market and all these things. But with Bill Gates, I see someone who sort of privatized things that were once in the public domain through the force of the state and as such has accumulated great wealth. So my question is, why in a free society should we respect his ill-gotten goods? You mean why would – so Bill Gates gets a lot of his money through uh, selling to the state and also through – copyright and patent protections, which I don't believe would ever be enforced in a free society, and I think are, are one of the major blocks to human progress is patents and copyrights. Uh, and uh, so is your question, how would we deal with wealth that had been accumulated in uh, a status society when we became a free society? Yes. Um, I, I personally would not want to go in and steal uh, or initiate force against people, you'd have no way of redistributing that money back to its original owners. You don't even know who those original owners are. The beautiful thing about a free market is it generally transfers money from incompetent people to competent people. And so, uh, you know, it's, it used to be called, you know, rags to riches to rags in three generations. Like the immigrants come, they, they make a lot of money, and then their kids are lazy, and they blow all the money, and they're poor again. Right. So um, uh, family fortunes are maintained through the power of the state. If you look at the Bush fortune, the Clinton fortune, the Rothschild fortune, they are all maintained through the power of the state, particularly through central banking. 
So in a free society, I'm not worried about people who have made their money unjustly prior to a free society because very quickly they will have that money transferred to more competent people. People who have made their money through the state, and that is the majority of people who are rich these days, they've made their money through the state. I mean, even, even movie stars, right? One of the reasons they make their money is everything's copyrighted. And so those people have developed skills, like, like um, people like Bill Gates or, or those people, they have developed skills, sometimes unwillingly, around buying congressmen, uh, around gaming the system, around uh, uh, dealing with patent trolls or being patent trolls themselves, those skills are going to be completely useless in a free society. It's like learning how to sing in a register that only dogs can hear. You know, <laughs> There's no audience of canines. You're kind of out of luck. You're just annoying people and breaking their wine glasses. So I don't care what happens in a free society. Very quickly, the money is going to go out of the hands of incompetent people if their primary prior competence has been gaming the status system, when that's gone, ah, forget it, you know? Uh, It's like being a gymnast and then suddenly going to Venus, right? It's kind of, well, Venus is the same size. It's like being a gymnast and then suddenly going to Jupiter uh, and not having as great a time because you've adapted to one environment, now you're in a different environment. So all the people who have gained their money and power through the state, let them have it. In a free society, they will quickly dribble away through their fingers and go into the hands of more virtuous people. As far as equality goes, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not equal. People are not equal. It's a fundamental reality. You know, in, in a religious context, people say, well, everyone's equal because there's a soul. But uh, philosophy doesn't really recognize the immaterial, and it just has to recognize that people are different. Some people are tall. Some people are short. Some people have great singing voices. Some people have uh, great intelligence. Uh, some people are very pretty. Uh, some people are, you know, drawn towards wisdom. Uh, some people are great with numbers. Some people can learn foreign languages much more easily. There is just a wide scattershot of skills, talents, abilities, and deficiencies in the human race. And you can't, you can't change that. I mean, I guess you could try and force, you know, like that old bed in the ancient, what was it, Diogenes, that old bed that, that you had to stretch people out who were too short and cut the legs off people who were too tall and try and fit them all in the same bed. You can't. You, you can't fix that problem. I don't even think that it's a problem. If everyone was the same, then, you know, nobody would be headlining Vegas uh, and nobody would be um, cleaning houses. So uh, we are different. We are born different and we all make different choices about how hard to work. Uh, some people choose to take it easy, and I think that's fine. Uh, other people, uh, like me, have been pretty much workaholics, and uh, that's fine too. So I respect people's choices. I respect the biological and genetic diversity of the species, and expecting everyone to end up with the same stuff is, uh, I think, uh, uh, it's utopian. I think it's, it's anti-biological, anti-empirical, and therefore unachievable. Thank you. Violet? By the way, it's a Procrustean bed. <laughs> Procrustean bed. And also to make people equal, you have to promote some people to leadership, to, to authority, to give them power. Right? So the, the left-wing idea of, well, you know, there's poor people, there's rich people, let's take some of the money from rich people and give them to poor people because we want everyone to be equal, doesn't work even logically, let alone economically or morally for that matter because they're initiating force. Because if you want to make people equal – and to achieve that, you have to promote people and give them a monopoly of violence and currency, then they're not equal. You automatically create a super deity form of human hierarchy in order to make people equal. So I think it's um, equal before the law. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely equal before the law. But 
equal in effects? I don't know. That's like saying uh, everyone should win American Idol. Well, you know, some people work hard. Some people have naturally greater voices. Some people have a greater pitch uh, and they've worked on it. Uh, some people are more musical. You know, some people are going to win. And uh, that's how you get the best quality to the people. <clears throat> okay. Um, I guess my question is like bringing it back to what we were discussing before. It's like a human human rights a question. Um, we were like the first question talked about um, – like issues in other countries, but what if we have issues closer to home that if uh, we know that there's people suffering, like if uh, there was a group that was kind of like a cult, uh, like uh, FLDS, or like especially like religious cults that have like um, almost like a moral standing to justify um, what they feel to be right. So like, it, don't, don't we think that there should be like a state responsibility to handle those kind of issues? Well, okay, so we create the worst-case scenario. So there's some cult, uh, some religious cult or some whatever cult. It's those guys who wanted to cut off their own testicles and jump on the Halle Bet comet. So let's say there's some cult and they're harming people, and maybe they're even children getting born there and the children are being harmed, right? Yeah. And your question is, could, could a state not deal with that kind of issue? Yeah, that shouldn't there be a responsibility for... Um, a state operation to, to go in there and to help those people? Well, first of all, governments don't do that now, right? I mean, you can have a cult in America. Uh, I mean, I just know this. I, there was some Dr. Phil where there was some cults where, um, and, and they, they bought up their land and they had their cult. Well, the government doesn't go in. So the idea that the government is going to go in and deal with these things that you find objectionable, and which I actually find objectionable too, uh, creating a government to deal with that is not doesn't happen now. I mean, cults operate all over the world, uh, some of them with a great deal of legitimacy, <laughs> and um, uh, the governments don't deal with them as it stands. So that's not going to happen. The second thing, e- even if a government could deal with this, how on earth are you going to create a government and give all of this power to people, all of this weaponry, all of this power? There's armies, the police, the prison system, the court system, the taxation system, the debt system, and most likely a fiat currency or central banking counterfeiting system. How are you going to create this giant monolith of power and then say to it, now only deal with cults that I find wrong? Well, um, They're they're not going to do that. The moment you give people this kind of power, they're going to start using it to punish their enemies and to reward their friends, to enrich themselves and to impose their wills on everyone else. Political power, and this has been shown in repeated psychological studies, political power is incredibly addictive. It is more addictive than cocaine, which kind of makes sense. Like evolutionarily, the ownership of other human beings was incredibly profitable. It gave you lots of money, it gave you a harem and so on. So we're kind of biologically driven to have power over others, which is why the moment you give a state, uh, you're basically, you know, bringing a distillery to a bunch of drunks. You're basically bringing cocaine to a bunch of coke addicts and then saying, now, be responsible. It's, it's not going to happen. Uh, people lose their minds when they go into politics. Like, they literally become insane, which is why people do incredibly stupid and risky stuff, uh, which is why they start wars, uh, which is why they lie so easily. It, they, they go mad. They, they're addicts. Political power is a dangerous addiction, well, the most dangerous addiction that I would say, because at least if you're smoking uh, crack, you're only harming yourself, but with political power, you're destroying the world. So the idea that you can create a state which is addictive and, and m- a mind-altering substance of concentrated violence – 
and then say, well, it's only going to do what I want it to. Um, you know, it's just like those old stories where you summon a demon and expect it to obey you and it ends up ruling you. Uh, that is how it works. You, you, you might want it to just deal with Carl's. Never going to happen that way. It's just going to continue to roll, continue to aggrandize, continue to build its power base and continue to lie and manipulate and buy votes and just trundle along. That's, that's the nature of this kind of power. Hi. My question uh, has more to do with uh, organization structure, and I agree a lot with your points about uh, sort of the distinction you made between ruler and rules and uh, sort of the popular misconception that anarchism or anarchy means chaos or something like that, as a uh, famous Russian anarchist, uh, Volin, he pointed out that anarchism is really a question of organization, not one of non-organization. So uh, as it pertains to that, uh, a lot of anarchists, of course, well, all anarchists would be against the state. But more than the state, uh, it's uh, what, what the state is rooted in structurally, which is a sort of hierarchical formation. Given that many anarchists would also be opposed to capitalism on the same grounds with top-down structure, uh, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the point that uh, capitalism is an inherently or is a, is a hierarchical structure and is thus not consistent with anarchy or anarchism? Well, I mean, I would just say that they don't understand anarchism and may, in fact, be idiots. I hope that none of them are in the room, but <laughs> they may just be idiots. Right here. Look, Bakunin said, who was a famous 19th century anarchist, who was, I don't think, any particular friend of capitalism, he said, so I'm an anarchist. Does that mean I reject authority? Of course not. I, I bow to the authority of the man who makes my shoes because he's way better at it than I am. So hierarchy in terms of authority, yeah, you know, I go to the dentist and she cleans my teeth. I don't sit there at home with, uh, you know, a fork and a laser saying, I'm sure I can get these guys pearly white. I, I, I submit to the authority of the people who build my house or who maintain my car. I, I, you know, they say I need something. I might get a second opinion. I submit to the authority of my doctor. And right. So the fact that there's hierarchy in human society, that there's expertise and that there's obedience to that expertise if freely chosen, that's I, called the division of labor. And if mean, you want to get rid of hierarchy, then you have to get rid of parenting, right? Because parenting is the ultimate hierarchy. I mean, my, my daughter is five years old and she can't, she can barely do a damn thing for herself yet, right? I mean, other than <laughs> Xbox and tablets, right? She can't cook her own food. She can't go to the grocery store. She doesn't have any money, right? So I am an authority with regards to her. And, you know, until children are born fully grown, that's kind of how, ow, <laughs> that's kind of how it's, it's going to be. So people who say, well, I am against capitalism and I'm against the government don't understand the moral basis of anarchism. Anarchism is the inevitable result of the non-initiation of force, the non-initiation of force. And if I set up a lemonade stand in front of my house and I say, lemonade, 10 cents, and people drive by and they don't take my lemonade, they don't give me their dime. Have they initiated force against me? Absolutely not. If people stop and they say, yeah, I got a dime and I'm pretty thirsty and that lemonade sure looks good. And then they give me the dime and I give them a cup of lemonade and they go on in their way. Has anyone initiated force against anyone else? Has there been any fraud, any deception, any theft, any violence, any rape, any murder, any assault? Absolutely not. If I find a woman attractive, I ask her out. She can say yes. She can say no. I'm not initiating force against her, 
we get married, we don't get married, we have kids, we don't have kids. Nobody's initiating force against anyone. So if people want to get together and, and, and combine their skill sets to offer a service, there's nobody who's initiating force. As long as they're not using force to compel people to consume that service, if I go start a restaurant, I can't build the whole damn thing myself. I can't cook the food and be a waiter and seat and do the taxes or do the books, whatever it's going to be in a free society. I can't clean it. I, I can't, one person can't run a restaurant. So let's say 10 people run a restaurant and they put ads out and they say, come eat at my restaurant. Well, they're not initiating force. They're simply offering a service, right? Yes, they used to say, run your flag up the pole and see who salutes. Well, it's not really an example of voluntarism, but so people come into my restaurant or they don't. They come in, I serve them their food, they pay, they leave. It's all voluntary. So the idea that you'd sort of be against the free association of people from an economic standpoint, whatever that results in, is it going to look like what there is now? No, we don't have capitalism now. We haven't had capitalism really ever in the world fundamentally, but there have been different degrees. But uh, you know, capitalism is where nobody's initiating force, or at least a tiny minority of private criminals are initiating force, and the vast majority of people are respecting that. We've always had governments. We've always had taxation. We've always had wars. We've always had debts. We've always had coercive control. And, and, and companies have always tried to go to use the government to gain resources because that's what they have to do. And if they don't do it, they go out of business, and the other guys who do it end up running the, the industry. So people say, well, I'm against rulers. Fine. Well, somebody who opens a goddamn restaurant is not a ruler of you. They can't sell your children to foreign banksters into economic slavery. They can't goddamn well start a war on your behalf. They can't force you to pay for the indoctrination of your own children. To name a few of the many crimes. They can't can't force you to pay for arms that they're going to sell to criminals. They're just a restaurant. And so people who say, well, I'm against the state and I'm against capitalism is like saying, well, I'm against forced association and I'm against free association. So what the hell kind of association are you for? Psychic association? Vulcan mind melds? Group hubs in another dimension? No, it's either forced association or it's free. There's no other kind. Okay. Well, what I mean specifically. can Can you hear us? Stefan. Yeah, go ahead. What I mean specifically is the way a given social formation is structured. I don't mean necessarily a doctor having authority because they have some sort of knowledge or expertise. I mean, for example, a workplace being governed in such a way where, let's say you have 50 workers and only one, one person is the owner. And that person has all the authority and say the other 49 people there do not have any say whatsoever. Isn't that Sort of isn't that against the principles of anarchy in the sense that people do not have a way to participate in the social formation that they are a part of? Wait, wait, sorry. So, okay, so let's say I have a factory. Yeah. How 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 do I have all the authority? Because you own it. Okay, let's say I own it. I, I still don't understand how I have all the authority. You own it. And people there, because there is chronic unemployment, because even under conditions of full employment, there will always be people unemployed, have to stay there and work. And on top of it... They why, do, why do people have to stay there? Because they depend on it for their livelihood. No, but I don't understand. Like in a free society, they can go pretty easily start their own business. They can go work from home. They can go join some other company, right? So I, I don't... Why, why would they have to work at my place? Because it's their means for existence, just like it is today. When people do, people oh, cannot. Oh come on! But, but I mean, sorry, I've actually run a business for okay. fifteen years. 
Okay. Let me tell you, it's really hard to find good employees and it's really hard to keep good employees. Okay. Right? This is why we did profit sharing. This is why we took them on whitewater rafting vacations. This is why we gave them bonuses. This is why um, we did everything we could to keep the employees happy. You know, as, as an owner, you're very dependent upon competent people. Okay. And you can't make money if people hate working for you, if they don't want to show up, and if they're just doing it grudgingly, you are going to lose out to someone who makes their employees fairly enthusiastic to come to work. Right? So I can only assume this comes out of your inexperience. I don't mean this in a negative way. It's just, you know, you've only had theoretical uh, understandings of these things. But from a practical standpoint, uh, as a factory owner, my factory is a massive liability because I've got to heat it. I've got to maintain it. I've got to keep the machines running. I've got to whatever, right? Trim the bushes outside or mow the lawn or sweep it up. Like I have to keep that factory running. It's a massive liability if the factory is not as productive as possible. Now to have productive workers means that the workers have to kind of enjoy being there. They have to contribute. They have to do kind of cool stuff. They have to have their own ideas. And the more self-starting they are, the more self-initiating they are, the fewer managers I need. And therefore, the more profitable the factory is going to be. And this has been replicated many times, that the more participation the workers have in the, in the jobs that they have, then the more productive and the more profitable the place tends to be. So this idea that one guy has this mystery rule over 50 people because he happens to own a factory, boy, I tell you, as a boss, I felt sometimes more like a slave to my employees than their master because they could just pick up and leave uh, anytime they wanted. Uh, because they can go work anywhere in the world in a free society. And other, if, especially if they're competent, other people are going to be constantly offering them jobs. Like I was, con- people who were the, my most competent employees, the most enthusiastic employees, were constantly being offered other jobs. And I constantly had to find a way to improve their working environment to keep them uh, here. Right. So, um, so, yeah, this idea that some guy just magically has this economic cage in a free society around his workers, I think, is just a Marxist fantasy and has no relationship to uh, any real world economic situation. OK, thank you. Hi, how are you? Big fan. I'm well. How are you doing? Um, so one of the things is whenever I debate with anybody there and we talk about private property, there's always the problem of, uh, we talk about oil spills or, uh, nature being deforested, that kind of thing. So for me, I want to ask how will private, how can we, do we have to section out parts of the ocean to people? How, how does, how do we privatize, you know, everything? How do we have everything, uh, somebody own property for everything Good question. For can, can you be that person because then we can pretend to be debating with him I just blow your mind okay so I, I would say to this person you can respond in character if you like but I would say to this person okay so do you feel that environmental protection is working well at the moment Yes, says the pretend person. Yes. So the pretend person would say yes? Yes. 
Okay, and then I would say, so then we don't have a problem with global warming, we don't have a problem with deforestation, we don't have a problem with military activity throughout the world uh, causing uh, massive environmental destruction and degradation, we don't have the use of depleted uranium shells in the Middle East, uh, and we don't have uh, that kind of stuff, right? So we don't have oil spills. So, so right now, we don't have any problems with environmental management. So I guess the answer is no, then. Right, so, so no, that it doesn't work right now. Right? It's certainly not ideal right now. Because, and this is really important to, to, so people say, well, how would this work in a free society? And they kind of have this weird belief that it's somehow working now. Like, how would the poor be taken care of in a free society? Are they really being taken care of now? Absolutely not. I mean, one in five people, one in five families in America has no person working. The amount of human capital, potential work ethics and habits and educational requirements that are being destroyed is staggering. And, of course, they're, you know, running into debt. They're living in these terrible societies, uh, ghettos. They're, they go, kids are going to terrible schools. So they're not being taken care of at the moment. So there's this weird thing like how would a free society do as well as the government in taking care? Like we were talking with the lady earlier about the third world, right? Well, how is it happening right now? It's terrible. So when it comes to environmentalism, and there's a lot to talk about, and I'll keep this brief. Um, First and foremost, fiat currency drives economic consumption. People buy stuff because, to, to some degree, because their money is melting in their hands. It's, it's, it's turning into powder. It, it's bursting into flame in their hands. Because it, it, when you print more money, you get inflation, right? Uh, and, and prices of everything goes up. So people have to buy now because their money's worth less next year, which is one of the reasons why there's such rampant consumerism in countries with central banking. So privatize the currency and immediately people will be rewarded for not buying now because their money will generally gain in value over time, like Bitcoins do. They gain in value over time. And so people will defer purchases because they'll, like, you know, nobody wants to buy a computer because you know six months from now the computers are going to be way better, right? So, so that's one thing to do. Uh, the second thing to recognize is that the best way to maintain the value of something is to give it to someone. Right. I mean, we've all driven down streets and right? you see these nice houses, nice houses. Then there's one lot that nobody owns and it's a shit heap. Right. I mean, it's got it's got uh, old shopping carts in there. There's like old oil drums and, and barbed wire and junk and crap and coffee cups because it's nobody's. Right. So when something is unowned, its value tends to deteriorate because nobody profits from its uh, its ownership. The more stuff is owned privately, the better it's going to be taken care of. And so deforestation occurs when a forest company is only sold the logging rights and is not sold the actual land, right? So if you, was, if you bought the right to pick apples from fruit trees, but you didn't buy the, apples them, the fruit trees themselves, you wouldn't care about maintaining the trees. You just go in and pick all the apples and be gone. But it's the same thing with land, right? So in, um, in Canada, you can uh, buy... Um, you can buy the, the logging rights, which means clear cutting. But if you buy the land rights, which is how it would work in a free society, then you always replant in the same way that a farmer who buys land is always going to replant. It's not just going to take all the crops and then bugger off because whoever can replant can get a longer term, greater value out of the land and therefore will be able to bid more for it. And the land will accumulate to, to those people. So sustainability is economically productive, is economically profitable. A renewable resource will always uh, make you more money than a one-time resource, uh, all other things being equal. So we want to privatize as much as possible, not just the resources, but the land itself. So I think that's important. Why are we so dependent on oil? Because after the Second World War, particularly in North America, but also in Europe, 
um, governments paid for all these roads, right? And they did that because they wanted to be able to move troops around in the event of a nuclear uh, war or, or an invasion. And so we, we, we got this crazy car-centric culture because of governments. And what would that look like in a free society? I don't know. But that's another reason why we have so much uh, environmental predation. Uh, population growth, right? I mean, the, the more wealthy people are and the better educated they are, the fewer children they have, right? The best contraception is industrialization. And so we want to make sure that we contribute as much to the wealth growth in society because then society has enough wealth to uh, put scrubbers in the smokestacks and, and to recycle and all the kinds of things that, that are considered beneficial to the environment. So these are just a few ways in which our existing environment is being completely uh, preyed upon with almost no sense of the future or for the future uh, because of, of government policies and because of limitations on the private ownership uh, of resources. So I'll give you just one last example. So uh, for, for 400 years, there was a giant, incredible, amazing cod fishery off the east coast of Canada, off Newfoundland. Uh, I actually visited it when I was 16, back when there was still one of these things. And the, 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 the first people who discovered it said it's – they wrote in their diaries that said it's weird. I feel like I could walk from a half mile offshore to the island because there's so many fish here. It feels like you could just walk on the backs of the fish and, and get where you want to go. And this lasted for 400 years, no problem, with private management, right? Which is, you know, everybody in the village kind of agrees how many fish you can take and anybody who takes more fish is ostracized and they don't want to do that because they live in a village with like 50 other people. You don't want to be ostracized because you've got no one else to talk to. So this lasted for 400 years, no problem. Well, the government came in and the government started assigning quotas. And once the government bypassed or, or blew away the existing social controls and gave all these quotas and they gave more quotas because they said, don't worry, we've got it down to a scientific art. You guys have been under fishing and people are like, great. Well, if I can fish more and my neighbor's fishing more, so I might as well, uh, then I can make more money. So they bought votes by upping the quotas. Within a couple of years, the cod are gone. A multi-hundred year resource is completely gone and will never return. Well, this is an example of replacing spontaneous well, private control with coercive <laughs> centralized control. I'm sorry? Nothing. Go on, go on. So, yeah, so I would say that the, the best chance is, is a free society, the best chance for the maintenance of, uh, of resources and the protection of the planet. Okay. Thank you, Stefan. Do you want to go next? Yeah. I mean, we got time since nobody's there, so go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Great questions, by the way. Thank you. I wish I'd gone to school with you guys. A bunch of socialists up here. Oh, God. I'm having flashbacks. Hang on. Okay, I'm back. Hi. Um, I kind of have a follow-up to that because, um, I mean, part of what you're saying does make sense, but there are certain aspects of environmentalism and ecology that aren't necessarily contingent or have not a lot to do with the market. While I do agree that sustainability is a great economic incentive, what about things that are kind of without economic incentive? Because if you look at sort of ecologically, environmental systems are sort of dependent on certain keystone species, and what's to stop people from sort of tampering with these systems in ways that aren't necessarily involved with the market, like in preser uh, preserving certain endangered species, things that sort of need to be regulated. Otherwise, we're going to have sort of the decimation of species that ne don't necessarily come into play in our lives in a direct way, such as with the economy. How do we protect those in a way that's effective? Can you give me an example? I mean... Uh, you go. 
Well, I mean, there are certain animals that people have a sort of random attachment to, like eagles, but um, if you decimation of sort of uh, marshes, wetlands, and I mean, I'm trying to think of more specific species. There are... The monarch butterflies? Sure, monarch butterflies. I mean, I, I don't really know how to sort of direct it more. So just pick any of uh, well, you, you care about those things, right? I mean, but don't you think those should, endangered species should be given some credence? I mean, there are tons of, I mean, the West Indian manatees who are being completely decimated because of just carelessness, generally. I, know. I mean, there's... Well, <laughs> okay, but, but let, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. How does it work now? I mean, people are, are being sort of careless and they're going against certain regulations. And, I mean... In a free market, how, so how regulations don't work particularly well, right? Yeah, but how can we improve that? Under, I mean, what kind of incentives would you sort of implicate to right. try and control people who are destroying natural ecosystems? Right. Well, buy them. Buy them. Yeah, not the people. <laughs> buy the wetlands. So you would go to people and you would say, "Look, we really need to protect." These this this wetland well, what about because you know we, we can't get our if one we can't get our, our necessary mosquito base without it or whatever right so we need to protect these wetlands and so you go to people and uh, they donate uh, they help out they volunteer and you buy that land and then once you've bought that land nobody can come and and destroy it or build on it or anything because you own it right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. What about, I mean, who has more money? Is the people who, are, who constantly need land to make products, people who want to decimate this land because they don't really care about the ecological integrity of the land. I mean, if you get outbought by someone who wants to sort of decimate it to build a factory on it, I mean, there's no real chance for you. The environmentalist doesn't have as much money as the active capitalist. You don't have the money. No, 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 no. Okay. Sorry, sorry to say no, no, no. Uh, first of all, it's not a matter of money, fundamentally. Human beings are not, they're, they're driven by incentives, but those incentives are not always centered around money. So, I mean, n- nobody has kids as a profit center, right? It's ridiculously time-consuming and expensive to have kids. It costs like 200000 or $250,000 these days to raise a kid to adulthood. Why do people have kids? Because they want to have kids. They love kids. They want to share life. They want to watch a mind grow. They want to whatever, right? Mentor. So money is not the fundamental driver. If money was the fundamental driver, there would be no people, right? <laughs> because nobody would have kids. It's a ridiculous decision to make from an economic profit standpoint. Or time. Isn't money the fundamental driver when you're buying something? If you're choosing between two, all right. I'm well, co- well, no, what I'm saying is that it's more than just economic drivers that run society. So let's say if, if I wanted to buy up a bunch of wetland, first of all, who's going to want to build there? It's a marsh. Right. So nobody's going to want to build a factory in a marsh. Right. I mean, so you can buy that land fairly cheap because it's already swampland. I'm just using one example. But let's say there was some land that someone wanted to build some godforsaken factory on. Well, you start to bring social pressure on that person. You say, hey, man, if you if you build there, we're going to organize a boycott of your products. We are going to spread through social media far and wide that you are an uncaring, Mr. Burns-style environmental rat bastard. 
right, who, who wants to build a factory crushing these precious monarchs and we're going to have pictures of monarchs on your workers' boots uh, dying and, you know, we're going we're to make your life incredibly difficult if you choose to build there. And that, I'm telling you, that is an incredibly effective strategy because then it means that they're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to get some profit maybe from building here, but I'm going to have huge losses and incur the enmity of a, a significant portion, a loud portion of the population. So it's going to make more sense for me to build somewhere else. Right? So there will be environmental groups. And whoever wants to build anything that can be environmentally hazardous, if they've got half a brain in their head, are going to meet with those environmental groups and make sure they have their okay. Because the amount of economic damage that can be done to a company in a free market by a committed group of activists is huge. Right now, uh, like companies who supply to the U.S. government, companies like Boeing and, and, and they supply to the military, they don't care about consumer boycotts because they're not going to get boycotted by the military. But when everything is private, consumer boycotts have a huge, huge effect. And, of course, if nobody cares about it except you, then nothing's really going to change. But nothing will change in a government society either because you need to have a majority of uh, very interested people who are going to willing to go out and research and make speeches and vote in order to change government policy. And if you have that majority in a government, then you don't need the government because you can organize economic boycotts. And you can even have it programmed in, right? You can have when people start paying with their cell phones or their Bitcoin wallets on their cell phones or whatever, you could just set up a database and say these companies are not uh, we're not happy with their environmental performance. And anyone who believes you and subscribes to that will automatically simply not buy, which is rejected, will not buy either from the end product or from any company that supplies to the end product. Uh, it can be incredibly efficient to organize economic boycotts and companies who want to uh, sell goods, which is companies who <laughs> exist, uh, are going to want to make sure that they're on the right side of the environmental activists. And I think it's going to give the environmental activists the most power to have private end consumers driving economic decisions rather than government purchases, which are kind of immune from boycott. Does that help at all? I mean, so I definitely like I agree that uh, I mean, I'm I totally believe that boycotting I personally in my life, I boycott. I don't purchase from institutions that uh, from companies and corporations that I don't think are ethical. But I mean, if that were the case, that were, that would be something that could be implemented now, but it's not because it involves sort of a complete reorientation of, I mean, more general um, ethics that people don't really have. No, it's not. It's not, not that. No, it sorry is. to interrupt. It's because everyone thinks the problem is being dealt with. No, they don't. Right? Why aren't there spontaneous self-organizations of community schools? Because the government's taking everyone's money and, quote, solving the problem already so people don't, don't think about it. Now, if, if the government stopped taking money for schools and the schools immediately were, were, were turned over to, 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 free market, to the free market, then the, spools, the, the amount of energy and spontaneous organization that would occur would be enormous. But there's this big, giant monolith of state power in the way which nobody can change. At least no individual citizen can change. And so people just don't focus their attention on it. It's like, well, I'm paying my taxes. There's an environmental protection agency. Everything's being taken care of. And maybe I'll just vote for a green candidate. And so there's this incredible sloughing off of responsibility that occurs when you have a government. People are forced to pay for the government solutions. And they then, therefore, it's very painful for people to think that they're being forced to pay for something that's terrible. So one of the things that they do is they ex post facto justify being forced to pay for stuff by saying, well, at least the kids are being educated. Well, I don't like my taxes, but at least the environment is being taken care of. And then they don't really give it another thought. 
Because the idea that they're being forced to pay for something that's harming children and harming the environment is kind of unbearable to people. But if you take away that state power, then people actually have to look for productive solutions. The huge amounts of human creativity are opened up. The, the, the government is this giant logjam in the eternal river of human potential. Take that away and, and what can occur is, is amazing. But right now, people just shrug and say, well, it's there. I'm forced to pay for it. I'm sure it's doing fine. So I'm going to go watch uh, yeah. American Idol again or something like that. Thank you. I'm late for a quiz. Sorry. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Quick final question. So based on the workings of the non-aggression principle and everything that's been said thus far, um, isn't everything that you're saying based on a reliance upon the f- like a general agreement that human nature is inherently good? I don't think human nature is inherently anything. We are, it's like saying, what's the shape of water? Well, the shape of water is whatever container or trajectory or friction it happens to be surrounded by. Mm-hmm. You, you pour water into a vase, it's a vase. You pour water into a cup, it's the shape of a cup. Human nature adapts to its environment. This is our fundamental strength and weakness as a species. I know, so but- you grow up in Thailand, guess what? You're going to speak Thai and you're going to be part of the Thai culture. You grow up in New Jersey, you know, you got a whole different story. You grow up in a military family where you're spanked or hit or yelled at a lot. You're going to come out usually a particular kind of way. You grow up in some hippy-dippy family, I guess sort of like mine, where you're reasoned with and negotiated and nobody yells at you or hits you. You're going to come out another kind of way. So, you're saying so that- we are an adaptive species. We have great capacity for evil if we're traumatized when we're young, which is why we can't have a government. We have this capacity for evil. But if human nature were innately evil, we couldn't have a government because the government will attract all the evil people to run it. If human nature is innately good, then we don't need a government. If human nature is mostly good but a little bit evil, then we can't have a government because the evil people will use the government to dominate the good people. If human beings are mostly evil and only partly good, we still can't have a government because it's certainly not a democratic one because all the evil people will vote for evil policies and the good people will have no chance because the evil people will be in the majority. So there's no scenario in any blend of good and evil in human nature wherein a government can be justified. Uh, But uh, again, as I sort of mentioned, it's really all about the parenting. You raise peaceful people. You won't need criminals that the government can pretend to protect you from. You won't get people who want to work as government enforcers, uh, either in the military or the police or the prison guard system. Uh, The world will be Like the world which relied on slavery was about the same for 50,000 years. I mean, the the standard of living was terrible. Uh, People just, you know, the average life expectancy was like 20. Uh, People died of of tooth decay. You know, women died in childbirth all the time. That was the world of slavery. And, And if you sort of get up to the 15th century, you'd say, well, I guess there's been a few improvements, but, you know, it's still pretty crappy. But that's the society of slavery. Now, once you end slavery, at least as a formal institution, then you get the 20th century, which with all of its horrors uh, of state wars and and murders and democide, had uh, unbelievable advances in in science, in medicine, in the economy, in technology, in standards of living, in, in longevity, life expectancy, quality of childhood, massive, unprecedented, incredible, skyrocketing improvements. Now... The next barrier is the state, right? We had slavery and it made society crap for 50,000 years. And now we have a state which freedom and, and voluntarism is, is in combat with. And if we eliminate the state, we recognize its moral injustice the same way that we recognize the moral injustice of slavery. We get a world that is as incredible to us as the 21st century would be to somebody from the 15th century. 
incomprehensibly astounding. You can carry all of human knowledge in your pocket. What we get in 100 years after the state is so astounding. Like we literally can't, we can't conceive of it. Everything we can conceive of, it will be a million times better. The same way you say to someone from the 14th century, what is the next 600 years going to be like? Imagine your very best scenario. Everything that he could imagine would have been vastly surpassed. And so this is sort of my, my fundamental argument that the state is an immoral institution, just as slavery was. When we got rid of slavery, massive amounts of human potential and creativity were unleashed. It's the same thing is going to occur with the state. And let's not say that there's no sun because there's a few potential sunspots. It's sure better than the midnight we currently inhabit. Okay. Just one more question. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Thank you. Was that it? One more. Hi, Steph. Um, how would you say um, the non-aggression principle and uh, atheism like relate? So it's a good question. So uh, the non-aggression principle is um, would include things like death threats, right? Like I can't say to you, "Listen, I'm going to blah blah blah," right? And uh, so uh, you 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 can't morally say that to children. You you can't morally say if you don't obey me, you know, my invisible sky ghost is going to roast you on uh, hot coals and you know pee on your eyeballs for all eternity. Right. I can't go and threaten another adult with torture for failure to comply with my belief system. And the non-initiation of force is also the non-initiation of the threat of force. And the threat of supernatural force is by far the greatest threat that can be made. You know, if I threaten to torture and kill you, at least you're going to be dead at some point. But eternal torture is uh, something so psychotically immoral that uh, to, to inflict it, particularly upon children, as a threat is... Um, it's, it's immoral. It's wrong. You, 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 cannot, you cannot morally uh, tell children that they're going to burn in hell for failure to comply with a belief set. This is absolutely immoral. So that's number one. Number two is that in a free society, I cannot tell someone that they have an imaginary illness and then sell them a cure for a lot of money. Like if I say, oh, my God, you have gibbets and that's going to kill you. But I will sell you the cure for $5,000 a year. Well, if there's no such thing that I can prove as flippity gibbets, then I've just defrauded you to the tune of $5,000 a year. And so if someone goes to a child and says, you are born in sin, but I will cure that sin for a lifetime of allegiance and $5,000 a year paid to me. Well, clearly telling children they're infected with an imaginary illness and then demanding allegiance and money when they get older for the rest of their lives is a fraud that we would not allow in the medical sphere in any way, shape or form. Right. I mean, if someone just came to my kid and said, oh, you have flippity gibbets and it's going to kill you, you're going to die. Oh, and then be tortured forever, by the way. But obey me and I will snap my fingers, wave a magic spell and save you from this imaginary illness, we would recognize that this would be a pretty unholy, literally, thing to do to a, uh, to a child. So if, if you take away the moral legitimacy of uh, punishment, of, of the threat of punishment, and you take away the moral legitimacy of telling the child that they have an Im- imaginary illness called sin, and if you take away the abuse, say, of saying this greatest being in the universe died because you were bad, died for your sins, Jesus, and you take all of that away, 
And you also can't really promise rewards as well, right? So if I can't sell lottery tickets and say the reward will be something after you're dead, right? That would be, that would be wrong because I can't promise anything like that, right? So if you take away rewards, you take away punishments, you take away threats, you take away guilt, you take away sin, all of that kind of stuff, then you have the challenge for religious people of attempting to convince their children of religion without being able to bribe them, without being able to threaten them, without being able to guilt them, without being able to manipulate them. It'll have to be just a straight factual argument with no emotional threats or bribes or consequences or punishments. I think that's kind of a challenge. So uh, it, is, um, it is the initiation of force to threaten someone. It is fraud to bribe someone with something that cannot be proven and you don't possess. You don't possess heaven. You don't possess God's good graces. You can't promise that those things are going to occur because they can't be scientifically validated or, or anything like that. So um, belief in religion, everyone's allowed to believe in things that philosophy rejects, uh, but to inflict it on others, particularly children who are dependent upon you and who do not have independence, either legal or moral or intellectual, whose brains are immature, uh, it's obviously wrong. If I ran a home for uh, people who were developmentally handicapped mentally and I told them that they had to obey the rules or demons were going to come and, and hit them with hammers while they slept, they would be terrified beyond words and this would obviously be demonically abusive towards people whose brains were not mature. I don't see how applying that same line of thinking and, argue, quote, argumentation to children is, is any more moral. Does, does that help at all? Yes, it does. Thank you. Wrap it up, Donald. Thank you. I have one last question, and we're going to wrap it up after this one. Um, Wait. Sorry, we're going to do some rap? <laughs> Wait. No. Good one. Have I, have I looked wider? Hang on. Let me just look at my video here. <laughs> okay. okay, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> when, you, when you do rap, you just throw your hands up like this. No, <laughs> okay. Like that? <laughs> <laughs> okay so all right all right home fellows let's do one uh, more question <laughs> okay um so if i understand correctly you're suggesting that human nature is neither good nor bad however your a lot of your arguments are suggesting that there is some wrong and there is some right so isn't that presupposing some sense of human nature being good or there being some intrinsic quality of human nature because then in that case it's like it kind of undermines a lot of what you're saying. Philosopher. Um, can you just clarify that a bit more? I'm not sure how to respond to that yet. Okay, so my understanding is that you suggested that human nature is neither good nor bad. But a lot of the arguments that you're, you're making, particularly the state, the non-aggression principle, and that it's immoral, you're suggesting that it's immoral, isn't isn't making those arguments presupposing some intrinsic quality of human nature being good? So if not, it seems like it would be undermining everything you're saying. And I agree with you a lot. However, I'm very contentious of, of that. There has to be. Right. Okay, I think I understand. That's a, it's a great question. Okay, so let's say that I told you, and you believed me, let's just say, let's make that, make that easy. I said, the world will be free when everyone speaks Swahili. Then, then we will have no war, uh, you know, no debt, no, everything will be free and uh, we can all ride unicorns to cloud castles of infinite pleasure for our daily bread, right? All we have to do is everyone has to learn Swahili. So if you believed that, what would our plan be? 
Learn Swahili. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Learn Swahili. <laughs> You're thinking of those cloud castles. Yeah, I'm there too, man. Uh, yeah, so you'd say, okay, well, we need to teach everyone Swahili, right? And that's how we get to a, a peaceful world. So we want people to negotiate rather than to either use force or submit to force, right? I mean, that's win-win negotiations is, you know, the synchrona of of a free society. So if we want people to negotiate, to speak the language of negotiation rather than dominance or submission, then clearly as parents, we need to teach children through negotiating with them rather than imposing power or imposing force or saying because I said so or because I'm bigger or just because, right? We always have to negotiate with them. And then when they grow up, they won't know what it means really to bully or to be a victim because they will have been negotiated with respectfully throughout their entire lives. So they speak Swahili if we sort of say negotiation is Swahili. And so my plan, or at least the plan that I proposed low these many years, is we you know, reach out with reason and, and peace to as many people as we can. And we focus in particular upon parenting because freedom is like a language that we speak. And if you hit your children, you threaten your children, you say they're going to burn in hell, uh, you, you use your might, your force, your authority, your hierarchy to, to make them do what you want them to do, right? A study, I'm just doing an interview after this with a man who just did a study that shows that children are hit almost a thousand times a year in America on average. Well, by God, of course, they're going to grow up worshiping the state and wanting uh, and, and worshipping war and worshipping violence and being patriotic and bonding with authority figures and not having their own preferences and not knowing how to negotiate and bullying each other in schools. You're hitting children a thousand times a year. When they're, from seven months old to four years was his study, right? So well, you can't possibly have a free society when you're trying to build on a population who've experienced that level of violence growing up. And to say that that's human nature is incorrect because that's human nature when you hit children a thousand times a year. That's what you call human nature. Now, if you can get parents to stop hitting their children, to stop yelling at their children, to negotiate with them, then what is human nature going to look like? It's going to look vastly different, vastly different. And that's what we need to teach. The, the, The language that we need to teach people to teach their children and to learn with each other which is why I have books about relationships and getting along and negotiating. That's the language we need. Once we can negotiate, then we don't need force. Once you can negotiate, you don't need to steal. Once you can negotiate, you don't need to rape. Once you can negotiate, you don't need to murder or assault or vote. <laughs> and that's really the fundamental goal that I'm talking about. So, yeah, there will still be occasional evils in the world, of course. I don't know. Nobody knows finally what is the link between environment and genetics when it comes to something like sociopathy. Maybe there'll be a few sociopaths born. Maybe, as I said before, people get brain damage or, or a brain tumor and they become murderers or serial killers or some, you know, because something is fundamentally wrong with their brains. Will there be capacity for human beings to do damage to each other in the future? Of course there will be. Absolutely. Will it be a hell of a lot less than now? You bet it will. Absolutely. Because it won't be legitimized. It won't be legal and it won't be accepted as what is necessary for society to function. So we teach children the language of negotiation, we can get a free world. We teach adults the language of negotiation and we reject people who want to dominate us through force, either directly through abuse or indirectly through the state. And then we can build a movement that can build a free society. But 
I don't think, uh, given the current level of abuse that children are experiencing, both through religion, both through uh, destructive parenting, which happens in so many families, and the public school system itself, which is incredibly destructive to, to children. It's no negotiation with kids in public school. And so until we start to really find ways around those systems or, or ways that children can be raised peacefully despite those systems, um, I think we're, you know, all the theory in the world uh, won't uh, put a single uh, bullet out of a chamber. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Stephen. And we're going to, uh, Stefan, pardon me, <laughs> uh, Stefan, we have a Stephen here that we call Stephen all the time. So he's also a huge fan of yours. So kind of like subconscious thing. But nevertheless, it was a great uh, discussion. Thank you a lot for uh, being here with us. And actually, we have someone who wants to take no, a no, picture no, with everybody. you real quick. Everybody. You yeah, too, everyone. everybody. You mind back. taking a screenshot with us real quick? Wait, everyone come in. No, go for it. Awesome. Back it up, back it up. Back Anyone else? No. No? Am no? oh I got this looming giant big brother head in the background? Is that? <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? All right. Command shift. Uh, hold on. Where is it? <laughs> smile. Let me know when we're about ready because otherwise my smile is going to freeze. <laughs> okay. Which? Oh, there we go. All right. In three, two, one, go. Is that it, Bill? No? <laughs> Hold on, that wasn't it, Stefan. Hold on. <laughs> Command shift. <laughs> you, you're really trying to make me look got like a marionette now. We got it. We got it. We got it. You didn't smile. <laughs> All right, ready? Oh, yeah, let's go. do it again. One, two, three. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> Fail. <laughs> We got it. No. It took like four or five. It's okay. We're good. Come on. All right. That'll be all, Stefan. Thank, Thank you. Stephane. All right. Thanks, guys, so much. Great questions. Uh, enjoy your day and enjoy your youth. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>